Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. I'm Ian. I'm Evan. And today we are thrilled to be joined by really one of the best to ever do it, uh, a man who really needs no introduction. Uh, it's Grill Marcus. Grill, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Please. Pleasure is all ours. Uh, and you're here today uh, on the occasion of the release of your latest book on Columbia recording artist Bob Dylan, uh, titled simply Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs, which Em and I have and have both read. Um, just figured maybe you could give us a, a quick kind of rundown here at the beginning, like where did this book kind of come from for you? It's a really interesting kind of unique approach towards the material um, and obviously takes Bob as a jumping off point, but goes much broader and deeper beyond the seven songs referred to in the title. So just kind of how was how, how did the, the book have its genesis? Well, I've written three other books on Bob Dylan, part of a fourth, and I really figured that um, I shouldn't be doing this anymore. <laughs> um, you know, I'd done enough. I couldn't believe that I could go back to this same well without drawing the same buckets that I had before. So I wasn't planning to write a, a book about Bob Dylan. Yale University Press has a subdivision called Jewish Lives. And it's been going for quite a number of years and it's been very successful. They ask various writers to take on the life of um, a Jewish figure and it could be somebody very well known like Albert Einstein or mm -hmm. David Ben-Gurion, someone who's been the subject of many biographies already. Um, it could be somebody farther afield like um, Sarah Bernhardt. But in any case, they want someone with a unique perspective to write a relatively short book assessing someone's place in both Jewish culture and the broader culture while telling the story of their lives. So I was approached to write a book about Bob Dylan. And I said, I can't imagine why you would want to do this. <laughs> there, have, there have been so many books on Dylan. There have been good ones. There have been bad ones, a lot more bad ones than good ones. Lord knows that's um, the truth. They've been coming out since, I think, 1972. I think it was maybe when the first one, Anthony Scaduto's um dylan came out hmm. which when i went back and reread it i found was a much better book than i had thought at the time but in any case you know the narrative has become chiseled in stone sure anybody taking up this story would have to account for various milestones and bob dylan arrives in new york and he meets woody guthrie um he becomes a, a folk music star he scandalizes people who seemed eager to be scandalized when he uh, begins to play rock and roll uh, with the loudest band anyone had ever heard. Then he has this motorcycle. You know, we just know this story. <laughs> we, we know the story. <laughs> and we don't need to hear it again. You certainly don't need to hear it from me. So that's what I told the person. I said, you know, I don't want to write this book and I can't imagine why anyone would want to read someone else doing it. But I went home and I thought about it a little bit. And I thought, well, what if you simply approached the story of somebody's life? I mean, who is this person? Why did this person do what he or she did? 
to make the world more interesting, to make it richer, to open it up, if that's what this person did. Mm-hmm. Um, who is this person? And I thought, well, maybe you could approach that question or at least shape it, raise it by looking at a few songs. I didn't know what songs they would be. Not very many. Um, you know, half a dozen maybe. And, and you would go all across this person's career. And really, so I went back to him and I said, what if, you know, what if we did this? And I wrote a two or three page precy. Um, I included a, an incident both from Desolation Row, conceivably from Dylan's own life, and then, you know, something that had to do with my own life, all having to do with the first line of Desolation Road. They're selling postcards of the hanging, mm-hmm. which is a reference to a lynching that took place in Duluth, Dylan's birthplace, the birthplace of his father, where his grandfather had settled and become a successful businessman by 1920 when three black circus workers uh, traveling through Duluth were accused of rape and lynched in one of the most brutal lynchings of the time, which is saying something. And the postcard that was made from um, the photograph of these three men all hanging from a a, a telephone pole was one of the most disgusting, repulsive, grotesque of all of the lynching postcards that were a real craze in the United States in the first 20, 25 years of the 20th century. And so this was a reference to something very specific, very real. So I went, you know, in a couple of paragraphs, I talked about the possibility of, of, of how this event shaped lives in Duluth um, in that moment and afterwards. The possibility that Dylan's grandfather and his father might even have been present because Mm -hmm. lynchings were civic events. Everybody turned out, every white person that is turned Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. to, and, and they were sport, they were entertainment, they were celebrations as well as, you know, exercises of racial revenge and white supremacy. And then I talked about a lynching that took place in San Jose Mm -hmm. in 1933, um, where three men, three drifters, two drifters, not not three, had kidnapped uh, the son of the richest man in town. And this guy turned out to be a, a prince. Everybody loved him. Everybody knew him. Everybody liked him. Uh, they were captured. A mob broke into the uh, the jail with a battering ram, took them across the street, stripped them naked, mutilated them, um, hung them from the trees. And this was a, a great civic event um, in San Jose, too, where my father was born and where he grew up. Um, and in San Jose and in Duluth and Minnesota, um, the memory of these events was completely suppressed. It was never, after a year or so, you never heard any reference to it in the newspapers, on the radio, 
there were never any 20 years ago today or anything like that. Mm. It was it was erased. So I talked about, you know, well, this was maybe a song that I would take up the first line of Desolation Row. And I would begin to build a picture of, of sorts of Bob Dylan, the world he came from, the world he addressed and the world he changed, uh, maybe through this song. So the editor liked this idea. He took it to the board of um, the editorial board. They had already commissioned a Dylan biography, which they had actually turned down after mm. it was finished. I have no idea why. So they were feeling kind of touchy. But my editor at Yale, outside of this particular series, he liked the idea. He said, I want to publish this book. So I said, okay, now I have to write it. <laughs> and I have to figure out, you know, what songs to write about. It turned out that Blowing in the Wind, a song until not very many years ago, I'd always disliked, found boring and tiresome and never paid much attention to. That allowed me a way into telling, covering Dylan's life story mm -hmm. pretty much up to the present in different performances of Lowen in the Wind that he had um, he had put on starting in 1962 and going all the way past the 2008 election, election night in Minnesota, mm -hmm. where he played for the first time on campus of the University of Minnesota on election night and closed with Blowing in the Wind. So there I was able to trace his actual biography, but all in reference to this one song. So I ignored going electric and I ignored becoming a born again Christian. There might be a stray sentence referring to this or that, but I let the songs tell his story. And really it was a question, what kind of person would it have to have been mm -hmm. to write these songs and to find these songs Ain't Talkin' from 2006, The Times They Are Changing, Desolation Row, um, uh, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, um, and Murder Most Foul. What sort of person would it have to be to enter into other lives of other people, to inhabit lives other than his own, and say, what would this person have thought in this situation? What would this person have done in this situation? In other words, working really like a novelist, but mm -hmm. as a performer, as a singer. And I began to become more and more fascinated listening to many, many versions of any given song as it was performed over many years and seeing how the song stayed alive or didn't, how they fell flat and then came back to life, what it took to continue to, to have put something in the world, like a song, and then it's out there in the world, it exists, it's separate from you, you can't control it, and yet you keep coming back to it to see if it will tell you something you don't know, to address it as if it's unfinished, as if it needs more, or as Bob Dylan once said, he said, when I sing Blown in the Wind with Joan Baez, it doesn't even occur to me that I wrote that song. Mm. Really like an old folk song that was always there 
and we're just singing it because it's a song we want to sing. Not, look at me, I wrote this song. And I thought, how marvelous to acknowledge. You may own the copyright, but you can't own what it does in other people's imaginations. How many roads does a man walk down before you go? Fantastic. That's a that's uh, <laughs> not a um, uh, a prototypical uh, uh, origin story for a Bob yeah, Dylan thank, biography. Thankfully, it's not. <laughs> thankfully, it's not the boilerplate one that we get uh, every other year. It's, exactly. It's, yeah. It's, it's uh, titling it "Folk Music: A Bob Dylan Biography" is there's almost kind of a sleight of hand element there because if you are going into it with the expectation that we're going to get going electric, we're going to get the motorcycle crash, we're going to get Woodstock in 1970, <laughs> you might be a little disappointed. But for people like us, I think it's exactly what we want to read at this point. Um, what's, it's great that it's called folk music. I, I think that that, like you said, it's a bit of a sleight of hand move. It's, I think it's just a clever and kind of, it, it, there's a lot more to that title, I think, than meets the eye because of what you just were talking about, that his music is, it's when you think of Bob Dylan and folk music, those two words together, you think of Bob Dylan performing his early folk music or in the nineties playing the, the folk covers that he would play. But I think what, you're asserting um, with the book on some level is that the whole project of his musical career is to expand folk music and to kind of create these new versions and new um, avenues for what was always folk music to him and what he, what he thinks about his, it's like nothing he makes can't be folk music of some stripe. Well, I think that's exactly right. Um, I'm hardly the first person to say it, but listening to the so-called Sinatra albums mm. uh, that he made before Murder Most Foul came out in in 2020, um, there there were there were two albums, and then there was uh, that album Triplicate, three albums worth of songs associated with Sinatra. Although in many cases, their first recordings came well before Sinatra and. A song like Once Upon a Time mm-hmm. is more identified with Tony Bennett than Sinatra, but that's sort of the, the label they go under. I remember listening to those songs and thinking he's performing these songs as if they're folk songs. Mm. If they're for old songs that don't have authors, that aren't copyrighted, though the, the, these are some of the most protected copyrights in American history, um, these standards that have been recorded hundreds and hundreds of times by so many people or automatically were done so through the 40s and 50s, where anybody like Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, so many more would just automatically record these songs because that 
was what was expected. Sure. And you listen to the way he sings them, and he sings them as if they're common property, as if it's not just a song that everybody knows, but everybody has incorporated into their lives in one way or the other. Um, you know, Elvis Costello said this, said this, other writers have said this. These just sound, you know, they're no different from Little Maggie or John Henry. They're just songs that are part of our way of speaking to each other, understanding mm -hmm. each other. Um, and that was, you know, as, as I said, this is not an original thought of mine. But for me, it was a kind of revelation to hear that at the root of his vocation, as at the root of his calling, if you want to call it that, for Bob Dylan, um, when he entered the world of folk music, per se, in Minneapolis in um, 1960, 1959, in New York, in 1960, 61. Um, and, and there's a pool of songs that everybody is singing and everybody has to get behind that song. Some people wanna um, put their personality in front of the song. Some people wanna dissolve their personality into the song so that the song speaks for them. They don't speak for the song. Whatever it is, here is Bob Dylan. He's singing all the same songs everybody else is singing in Greenwich Village in 1961 and 1962. And he's trying to learn these songs so that they come alive under his fingers, coming out of his mouth. And in early 1961, you listen to recordings that were made of performances he did. It's not happening. It's not there. He's showing off a repertoire. He's saying, I know this song. Can he bring something to it? Can he make you feel like you've never heard it before when you've in fact heard it hundreds of times? No, he can't. But by later in the year, just a few months, he absolutely can in a way that other people can't. There's um, a wonderful little um, editing job that takes place in uh, Mar Martin Scorsese's film, No Direction Home, mm -hmm. where um, Tony Glover, a close friend of Dylan's before he left for New York, someone he knew in Minneapolis and who may remained a, life a lifetime friend till Tony died in 2019, was a friend of mine too. Um, he talks about how Dylan goes to New York in 1960-61, and a few months later, he comes back, maybe five months later, and he, you know, hangs out with his old crowd, and they get together in people's houses, they sing songs, and he said, you know, when he left, he was one or five or six people around here doing the same thing, and when he came back, he was in another dimension. Mm -hmm. He was doing things nobody could understand. Nobody, it didn't make any sense that he had gotten so much better, so much deeper, so much stronger so quickly. And he said, you know, those old blues legends about Robert Johnson or Tommy Johnson, they go to the crossroads 
they meet the devil. Uh, they learn how to do stuff um, that they that they could never do before and that other people can't do. And they reemerge transformed. And he said, you know, it was kind of like, and then it cuts back to Dylan being interviewed for the same film saying, well, I went back to Minneapolis and people kind of looking at me and they were saying, he's been to the crossroads. <laughs> so even Dylan accepts this little mythology uh, of a transformation that in the spring of 61, he couldn't. And in the fall of 62, he could. Sure. Yeah, I, I wonder, um, and kind of reading the end of um, the book, you, you know, you ended on a very kind of poignant note with the Murder Most Foul chapter and, and the very conclusion of it, um, which I don't want to necessarily spoil for folks here, just listen to the program. But, um, you know, a lot of what you talk about in the book is focused on these kind of earlier um, figures, um, you know, performers as well as songs that obviously Bob uh, kind of looked at, appreciated, drew from, and um, ultimately kind of uh, worked into his own kind of repertoire and the way that he performed. Um, and then Bob is really this this sort of like ultimate kind of synthesis of all of these disparate kind of figures um, and moments in time that stretch back into the 17th and 18th century, uh, where you get, you know, songs uh, like Jim Jones up until, you know, the uh, the Blind Lemons and the Blind Willie McTells of the early 20th century. Um, do you do you see any kind of modern practitioners that um, uh, kind of carry on this legacy uh, that could carry on this legacy from Bob into the future, or do you? Is it more of a like does Bob kind of represent the the conclusion of this particular kind of um, moment in time and and project? I don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, over the last twenty years which when we're talking about a career like Bob Dylan's obviously triples that mm -hmm. um, or more than triples that the handsome family, um, which is uh, Brett and Rennie Sparks um, have, have taken on that burden, have taken on that challenge of taking the whole folk tradition as broadly as you might want to depict it as their legacy, as their personal legacy, and then to transform it. There's a line that you hear in many, many murder ballads from the Appalachians uh, emerging probably in the middle of the, of the 19th century, and some going back further than that. There's a line that comes up over and over again when a young woman says, I'm not prepared to die, you see, when her erstwhile lover is about to kill her, mm. um, either because he, he doesn't want to be burdened with a wife. Or you, you know, often you can assume she's pregnant. He doesn't want a child. This is essentially the Mark and Lacey Peterson story uh, at its beginning. And she says, I'm not prepared to die, you see. And the Hanson family managed to find any number of ways to create songs where that line would appear. Even though it wasn't necessarily a murder ballad, it just appears. And it's like an anchor 
coming out of the ocean uh, like a whale spouting to say, see, I was here all along. That sense of a tradition, um, I think, who knows who has taken that up, who will take that up. I think the, the band, the Americans, um, has done that. I think Jack White very consciously mm. is working in that realm and did with the White Stripes and, and Ever After. Um, but there are all kinds of people, I'm sure, out there who I don't know, uh, who, who maybe very few of us know, uh, who are working in that vein. You know, usually when I come up with the title for a book and I send it to the publisher, it's just the beginning. It's, it never turns out to be the title. It's just something I slap onto a manuscript so you can call it something for the time being. But with folk music, um, a Bob Dylan biography and seven songs, it was never questioned. It was just like, okay, that's what the book is. <laughs> because it is saying that you can hear the ethos, the impetus, the desire for a common culture in so many different kinds of music, and not just music, in fiction, in movies, in politics, in political speeches that we turn to as touchstones. I think that Lincoln's second inaugural address is as much a piece of folk music um, as anything that was sung by Woody Guthrie mm. or Lead Belly in the 1930s and 40s. Well, I think that you really get to that really um, naturally and, and beautifully by the end of the book with the chapter on Murder Most Foul, which I kind of am inclined to talk a little bit more about because there's just so much there. That The song, it, it feels, you know, that that song you you mentioned that line about i'm not uh, uh, uh not prepared to die you see and you do also in that chapter point out that there's lines in that song murder most foul that are almost as if it's it's kennedy saying the same thing uh, as if he's trying to stave off the inevitable that song does not feel or sound to, i think to most people's ear like a folk song it is completely amorphous and yet I think it is a, it it has all those things on paper and it shares the commonalities with with what you define as a folk song with folk music even the title it feels like is kind of the song kind of goes back in again and again to this idea of witnessing this thing of the people witnessing this thing and going well we don't know why but we know what we saw it was was murder most foul which feels like such a like kernel of like a like a folk idea i mean what what do you feel about the way that the radio is used in that song the the device there yeah just i mean just the way you talk about it uh, i'm i'm sitting here thinking how how vast this song really is mm. um you know whenever i listen to it and i know this is true for lots of other people you listen to this 17 minute song i mean it's a long song it's a long time to spend with just one song and when it ends it feels so it is it has given you a whole world and then it stops and you want to continue living in that world so you play it again i i never listen to it without playing it at least three times which means <laughs> there goes the afternoon um and 
it's so it's such a strange song because you can hear it as Bob Dylan calling up Wolfman Jack, who happens to be dead, um, saying, I want to hear this and I want to hear that. And as he goes through this litany, you are hearing the whole world of American music, of a common culture, of, of, of a common discourse opening up one song after another. Um, and yet it isn't necessarily Bob Dylan at all who's calling up Wolfman Jack. The song takes place to me today anyway, as I hear it today. It takes place in the very few seconds between the time the first bullet hits President Kennedy and he's not dead. He, he may be in shock. He may be unconscious. Uh, he, he's incapable of speaking. And yet he's not dead. And then the second bullet hits and he is dead. But there's a brief instant of time in between those two events. And it's in that instant of time that the entire song may be taking place. Mm. So it may be JFK who's calling up Wolfman Jack and saying, I've got to hear this and I've got to hear that. And you have to play this. It doesn't matter that a lot of these songs weren't you know, ever written or recorded until after he died. Mm. One of the things the song is saying is that America was irrevocably changed, altered, subverted, undercut, called into question, called into doubt by the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. And not just for people like me who are old enough to remember that event and what it did to them, but for generations after who weren't even born. The country has changed and they are born into a country that no longer can take its existence for granted. I think of it this way, um, early in his career, Dylan, like a lot of other folk singers, was fascinated by, fixated by the murder of Emmett Till in Mississippi in 1955. Mm -hmm. Something that are, has never uh, left our culture, that has remained part of our culture, a story that is told and retold, told over and over again in movies and novels and historical research and documentaries. That story has never gone away. It has never faded. In 1961, which is six years after Emmett Till was murdered in Mississippi, Dylan, like other folk singers, is still, you know, kind of working on this. And he says at one point to someone else in Greenwich Village, you know, I'm, I'm working on a song about Emmett Till where I, I speak as Emmett Till. I'm Emmett Till. And I talk about what happened to him from his point of view, from when he's alive and when he's not alive, after he's already been murdered, where, where he's telling us what happened to him. Well, that song was never written. But then, how many years later is it? 2020, 1961, practically 60 years later, Bob Dylan writes a song about someone else who was murdered. And the, the least powerful, per, excuse me, the least powerful person in the country imaginable. 
Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy in Money, Mississippi. He's, he's kidnapped, he's tortured, he's murdered, his body is thrown into the Tallahassee River. Um, he's the least powerful person in the country. He is a worthless, no-count, who-cares, little black boy, out of his element, a story guaranteed to be forgotten, except that it never was. And then you've got the most powerful person in the country, JFK, the president of the United States. And the message is that in America, anybody can be killed at any time for any reason mm. or no reason. That's what they share. And so the song that Bob Dylan didn't write, that he failed to write, where he speaks as Emmett Till, 60 years later becomes a song where he speaks as JFK. What a remarkable transformation. What, what a history of the entire country is traced in the arc between this unwritten song and this fully realized song from so many years later. It was a dark day in Dallas, November 63. A day that would live on in infamy. President Kennedy was a right line. Good day to be living and a good day to die. He led to the slaughter like a sacrificial lamb. You see, wait a minute, boys. You know who I am. Of course we do. We know who you are. Then they blew off his head while he was still in the car. down like a dog in broad daylight was a matter of time and in the time and was right that's why even this. though this book in a way is not a we biography at all the first chapter is called biography and it's two pages long and it summarizes <laughs> bob dylan's life from um the time he was born until he won the nobel prize and after that until he announced um his rough and rowdy tour that's going to go through 24. Can you imagine the nerve, the arrogance? You're 80 <laughs> years old and you say, you know, I'm going to do a new tour. You don't say next year. You say for the next four years. That's a lot of confidence. In the midst of a generational pandemic, it should be noted. <laughs> yeah. And and not only that, I've spent, I've spent the year um, in the hospital. I've had three heart surgeries this year. And the idea that you can then just say, well, what am I going to be doing in five years? You don't think that way. Right? <laughs> well, I, I hope I'm here to do something next month. And he says, no, don't worry about it. I'll be around. I'm good until 24. Yeah. That's Bob. Have you caught any of the, uh, of the shows on the Rough and Rowdy Tour? No, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't been out yeah. um, much. Well, he's going to be playing for a while longer. So you got you, you got, got a couple of years. Chances. Well, <laughs> he he was coming to Berkeley um, or Oakland in June, and I was planning to go to that show. Um, I was in the hospital instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a good. Uh, I was at the third one of those shows there at the Fox. And that was the night that he busted out uh, "Friend of the Devil" at the end instead of yeah. uh, "Every Grain of Sand." It was really. 
remarkable kind of moment. Yeah, that was, I, w I was planning to go to one of those shows, but well, went by the wayside. Maybe I'll see you there when he comes back, hopefully next year or the year after. Um, one, one question that occurred to me just kind of as I was reading the book from like the number of times you come back to it again and again, and maybe there isn't much to say about this at all, but it just, it couldn't help but uh, wedge itself in my brain because this was a real nugget of history that I just had no idea of uh, going into this. Um, you returned to this publication, The Little Sandy Review by John Pancake and Paul Nelson, like time and time, like I think you reference it maybe in every single chapter, um, just as like a, a primary source for their interpretations of Bob at the time, as well as, you know, kind of all of the other music in this quote-unquote folk scene that Bob was living in, in, uh, you know, early 60s, early to mid-60s. Um, what is it about that, the the the, uh, the Little Sandy Review, that made it such a significant kind of uh, document that you wanted to, to work into your book? Well, once I realized that this was going to be a book about folk music in its broadest possible dimensions, as lived out by one person, Bob Dylan, uh, over the course of many, many years, I came across an issue of Little Sandy Review. And I realized right, you know, from just reading a few articles, that unless I was able to read the entire run of this little folk music fanzine, originally, you know, essentially published by, like you said, these two guys for its life from early 1960 to 19. 65 through about 30 issues unless i was able to read that which bob dylan was reading at the time mm -hmm. you know they knew they john pancake and paul nelson who became a lifelong friend of bob dylan's um th they all knew dylan when he was first playing coffee houses in dinky town in minneapolis in 1959 and 1960 he wanted them to write about him um, they were part of the same world. He borrowed, or in some cases stole, their records so he could learn what he didn't know. So he <laughs> right, I remember that story. Listen to songs that he hadn't heard before. And he writes about that himself in Chronicles. And mm -hmm. he writes about John Pancake as the chief commissioner of the folk police. Someone who said, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. You can do it this way, but you can't do it that way. He took seriously, as well as mocked and defied, the critical judgments of the Little Sandy Review. They <laughs> devoted five pages to his first album um, in the most celebratory and detailed way. This all, you know, this was part of his life. This was what he was reading, as well as what was out there to read. But I read this one issue. <clears throat> it was funny. It was snarky. It took no prisoners. It had no idols. It was, you know, th th they start out by saying, we love folk music and we want to do everything we can to make what's good in it thrive and what's bad in it disappear. Mm -hmm. And so it was a polemical piece of work. So I had, I knew I had to read the whole thing before I could write this book. Well, easier said than done. <laughs> there was a collection of the entire run of Little Sandy Review at the University of Minnesota Library. And I was planning to go out there and spend a, a month or so in Minnesota mm. and just read all this and make notes on it. 
it happened to be a collection at the University of Minnesota Library that my own daughter was the administrator of. Then COVID hit and we weren't traveling and I couldn't get there. Then Tony Glover died and I tried to buy his set of Little Sandy Review um, when his estate went up for sale. And I actually tried to bid on it until it went way out of reach. Mm. Uh, his run of Little Sandy Review. Well, my daughter and her husband went to John Pancake and essentially said, who had donated his complete run of the magazine to the University of Minnesota, is there any way, you know, that my dad can get access to this? Well, he had another set and he let them buy it and they sent it to me. It arrived wow. one day in a little box. You know, it, it's about five by seven. It's um, mimeographed. It's stapled on the back is the, you know, the least professional looking thing imaginable. Wow. Um, and I sat down and spent a month reading every issue. And it was just so funny. It was so much fun to read this and to and to the passion that went into their writing, whether it was snarky passion or open heart passion, you know, uh, wearing my heart on my sleeve passion. Talking about performers I'd never heard of, like Texas Gladden and Vera Hall, people from the 30s, first recorded in the 30s by John and Alan Lomax, saying, you know, th this is where it really happened. These are the mm -hmm. touchstones. These are the, the true Americans uh, who speak for the whole country and all of its history. And I, you know, go online, I listen to these people, and they're right. These <laughs> people are not like anyone else. They have, there is something deeper. There's something more ambitious in their singing. And it's what Bob Dylan ultimately was able to capture throughout his career, and as much as anywhere in Murder Most Foul. Again, you know, what's the last song? The person calling up Wolfman Jack. What's the last song requested? Murder Most Foul. Mm -hmm. Now, would Bob Dylan really be requesting his own song? No, mm -hmm. that's, that's <laughs> President Kennedy saying, I've got a split second to live and I want to hear all 17 minutes of Murder Most Foul. <laughs> and in the way that time floats, fragments, reassembles itself in art, that's perfectly believable. That, that There's no way that is impossible. That's fantastic reading. Um, you know, <laughs> you certainly convinced me. Um, I can't help but wonder, were there any other... Because, I mean, the, the songs you pick to, to write about the focus on uh, in the book are a fantastic kind of uh, mixture of some of the, the classic big-name ones that uh, a lot of folks would expect, as well as, like, Jim Jones, for instance, which... And Ain't Talkin' as well. And Ain't Talkin', yeah, exactly. I, I was pleased to see in there. Was, I loved that song. Great song. Yeah. Um, were there any other songs you considered writing about that you weren't able to kind of fit in or, or kind of approach from the right direction? Or was it always like the, this was the, this was the corpus? Well, you know, one song led to another. Um, I didn't consider other songs once I had these. Mm. Th this was enough. This was a, a, a broad enough territory 
to explore, to mine, to come back with what I was hoping to come back with. Obviously, anybody else could have picked 100, 200, 300 different songs. I'd already written a whole book on Like a Rolling Stone. I wasn't going to go back to that <laughs> again. Um, but with Ain't Talking in 2006, when it came out, and my reaction was, I'm going to be listening to this song for the rest of my life, and I'm never going to get to the bottom of it. It's just too spectral and too deep. I just know it is. And I kind of wrote around that song over the years, whereas with this book, it was a challenge. Okay, now I'm going to give it everything I've got. I'm not going to get to the bottom of it, but I'm going to try and get closer than I ever have. I'm just going to live in that song for as long as I can and see what I can find. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a challenge. That was a, a quest. Whereas, you know, the times there are a change in that chapter came out of watching the riots on January 6th, 2021, and thinking, you know, these people could be singing the times they are a change in. Mm -hmm. They aren't. They're singing Hang Mike Pence and Kill Nancy Pelosi. But they could very well have saying, been singing Come Senators and Congressmen Don't Block Up the Halls, mm. you know. Um, mm. and, and, you know, the battle outside is raging. My God, <laughs> how did he know? Come Senators, Congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled The battle outside region Will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times they are a-changing it's amazing that you know that song. It, the way you just described that it could be applied to the people that uh, many uh, would would claim, uh, you know, just people think that they were the villains in that story. Uh, some people <laughs> think they're the good guys. That's the, that is something about that song that you know Dylan was someone who was always an, uh, annoyed and and really bothered by being called the voice of a particular generation. I think you just hit upon that that song is more of just like illustrating something that is just a, a fact that doesn't really have any one uh, flag that it's waving. It's kind of like, that's a, a song about the energy that happens one way or another way. And it's a story that hadn't ended. You know, it's not sure. just a curio of the civil rights movement in 1964. Here it is in our faces right now that's a very short chapter and that's i just wanted to you know draw that circle it's all i wanted to do um with jim jones this is an old australian prisoner song it's a folk song in the formal sense bob dylan didn't write it he sings it traditionally he doesn't change a word um from the canonical canonical text and yet um this song becomes an absolute epic under his hands in 1993 when he takes it up. And again, I wanted to explore the world of that song and how Bob Dylan entered into that world and played a part in it as if it were a play. 
and he'd been given a role. There's a line about Jim in the Jim Jones chapter that I loved, which is that you were talking about uh, how it seemed as if all of his career up to that point as was sort of an apprenticeship for him to be able to reapproach these songs and mm. and perform them with absolute uh, command and certainty from like all angles to paraphrase you. But the line that I uh, have underlined here is that it was his as much as anyone's. He could do whatever he wanted with it, including nothing, which I think is, I thought that was just great. It, it is something that is striking about those records, Good As I've Been to You and World Gone Wrong, that they have almost no, they're, they're stripped down to the, just the barest essential of those songs. And that in itself, like with the triplicate uh, album and uh, the, those other of the standards records, I think that's just as profound a choice. And he knows that, I think, for himself, that it, it means something for him to do nothing. That was when I really understood the book. You know, you can write a book and not know where you're going and not know where you're going to end up and just, you know, are sort of following an impulse or, or letting an impulse lead you forward. And when I realized, or I had the notion when listening to Jim Jones, that his whole career had been leading to the point where he could sing this song as if he had written it, as if he had lived it, as if he was born in the 18th century and transported to Australia as part of the first shipment of, of prisoners uh, to this pe little penal colony that England was setting up. Um, th that his whole career had been um, a series of uh, steps up a very, very high hill to reach the point where he could sing this song as if he was nobody, mm. as if he was just the sort of forgotten person who would be shipped off uh, practically all around the world uh, to be forgotten. And yet he hasn't been forgotten. He, his voice is still there. And we're still hearing him through Bob Dylan saying, come around me, boys, and listen to my tale. Now the jury found me guilty, then says the judge, says he, half a life, Jim Jones, I'm sending you across the stormy sea. Take a trip before you ship to join the Iron Gang. Don't get too gay in Botany Bay or else And right down even till today in, in concert, he's still doing, he's still, you know, pursuing this project of, of bringing these songs out of the past and presenting them to a new audience. Evan and I certainly being people who never would have listened to um, Melancholy Mood, for instance, which has been a mainstay on the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour, um, or I think... Speak for yourself. All right, well, like <laughs> I'll speak for myself. Uh, or That Old Black Magic, for instance, which are, are songs oh, that... Great uh, song. 
uh, are great songs, <laughs> but uh, just like Jim Jones, um, uh, you know, for so many are locked away in this sure. you know kind of eternal past, and it takes someone like Bob to act as this sort of like historical ghost and and kind of and uh, travel through time in order to bring them back into the present and is literally presenting them. He just played it on stage in Paris 24 hours ago. It's yeah. it's really a mind-boggling kind of idea when you really think about it. Yeah, that the thing you just said about, you know, playing as if he's performing the songs as if he's nobody. It's like not any not just anybody can do that. He's like a special person to be able to play these songs. Yeah, as not just anybody can play the songs as if they're nobody. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> particularly if you're the opposite of a nobody. When you are <laughs> when you are a touchstone, a byword, um, and someone who is still to this moment utterly unpredictable. And I mean, you can go to a Bob Dylan show and walk out so disappointed, so crestfallen, so feeling I'll never, ever do this again. Or you can walk out saying, I had no idea. I never imagined that anything could be this good whether you're seeing him for the, for the first time or the hundredth time, whatever it might be, the, you know, whether you're 20 years old, whether you're 70 years old, whatever it might be. I think that is the perfect note on which to end it. You've already been so generous with your time. Uh, thank you so much, Grail. Um, folks out there, uh, the book is Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs by Grail Marcus out on Yale University Press. Uh, illustrated by a friend of the show, uh, um, Max, uh, a.k.a. Cut Worms, who was on uh, to talk uh, Modern Times with us at one point in the past. Love those little drawings. Yeah, beautiful um, looking book. Yeah. That's another thing, you know, just as people never questioned my title, which I never meant to be definitive, just say, okay, that's what the book's called. When Max Clark, uh, he was given the book, he read the book, and they said, you know, come up with something. And he came up with this cover and there wasn't a single person from my own kids to myself, to anybody at Yale who didn't immediately say, that's it. Mm. That's right. That's the book. <laughs> um, you know, he, he wrote a better book than you did. <laughs> and needless to say, you're welcome back anytime, anytime uh, yeah. for anything. <laughs> I noticed we just uh, got copies of the new Lou record uh, from Light in the Attic in the mail. And sure enough, <laughs> first page, the liner notes from Grail. Yeah, well, that was that was a real opportunity. Um, w when they asked me to do that, I said, you know, there, there are people who know so much more about Lou Reed than I do maybe care about him more than I do. Um, they're better people to do this than me. And they said, well, Laurie wants you to do it. Wow. Um, mm. Laurie Anderson is an old friend. So I, I said, well, I can't say no to her. Uh, yeah, we didn't even get to touch on it, but the whole section on, oh, Superman that you spend oh, yeah. in the book yeah. is just like uh, amazing. Uh, well, that's, maybe we... <laughs> that's another song like Ain't Talking that you know, I've always known I'll never get to the bottom of this, but I, I'm going to dive down anyway. Yeah, you're going to keep on trying. Or yeah. uh, fly up uh, like Superman. <laughs> Maybe right. so. Okay, thank you both yeah. so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, thank Grail. Thank you. Take care and be well.
As I walked out tonight in the mystic garden The wounded flowers were dangling from the vine I was passing by a young cool crystal fountain Someone hit me from behind Ain't talking Just walking Through this weary world of the world Hot burning Still yearning No one on earth would ever know They say prayer has the power to heal So pray for my mother In the human heart An evil spirit can dwell I'm trying to love my neighbor And do good unto others But oh mother Things ain't going well